Hello everybody, my name is Reese Garlinski and this is Young History, episode 95 on Togo. It is commonly said that the name Togo stands for a land where lagoons lie, but in reality, the name Togo was actually the name of a small village called Togodo, which means, in the Iwi language, the land beyond the cliff, or land on the other side of the shore because of the Lake Togo that this country is like reverse named for. And it is currently one of the thinnest countries in the world, with its width maximizing out at only 115 kilometers, which is extremely, extremely thin. And on top of that, there are 39 different languages spoken nationwide, despite French being the national language. And football slash soccer is a huge part of the culture here. Togo has had some major feats in recent years, such as qualifying for the World Cup and also winning the African Cup within the past 20 years. And Port Lome has become the busiest port in West Africa, even over the Lagos port in Nigeria, which is crazy because that has long been the most important port. And that pretty much gets us to the history where we want to get right into it. So I don't want to dilly-dally any longer. I'm coming back from a trip, so I want to roll through this and get some history going because I've been away from it for a few days, and you all know how much I love doing this. So let's keep this thing rolling, and let's do this. So one more time, my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History, and this country here, this is Togo. Let's do this thing. Our origins begin 2,000 to 3,000 years ago, where Togo's early inhabitants were likely part of the larger Bantu migration that took place during this time. Bantu-speaking groups gradually moved southward from the region that is now Nigeria and Cameroon, and they spread their language, agricultural practices, and cultural traditions wherever they went to. These early Bantu groups were likely the ancestors of many of the ethnic groups found in modern-day Togo. Over time, Togo became a crossroads for many different ethnic groups and cultures, mainly the Iwi, Mina, and Cabre, who eventually formed the main indigenous ethnic groups of this land. The Iwi, in particular, are one of the largest ethnic groups in modern Togo and have a very rich cultural heritage. Along with the other three, the Gwyn people were also some of the early inhabitants of the land that occupied it before the Europeans arrived. Also maintaining some hegemony over this region was the Ashanti Empire. That was around in the 1400s and had its peak around the 1600s. The Ashanti people initially settled in the dense forest region known as the Ashanti region of what is now Togo. And their empire developed an early, very sophisticated bureaucracy and military system in Togo. And it also had a hierarchical social structure with kings at the top followed by nobles chiefs and commoners the ashanti are renowned for their artistic and cultural achievements including their elaborate gold jewelry kenete cloth and vibrant festivals then that rolls right into the 1400s where togo was part of the larger western african region which was characterized by the presence of numerous powerful and prosperous kingdoms and city-states both within west africa and within trans-saharan trade routes this nation lied so it was very powerful in its trade even early on the Songhai Empire, centered in the region of modern-day Mali, actually exerted its influence over this entire region of West Africa during the 1500s, and it was one of the largest empires in African history, known for its thriving trade, administrative systems, and Islamic spreading slash scholarship. Togo, as a neighboring region, had major interactions with the Songhai Empire, sometimes it was through trade, sometimes through conquering, sometimes through the diversion of people who were of Songhai origin. The Portuguese began to make contact with West Africa through its explorers, which included the area that is now Togo. 
The Portuguese were followed by the Dutch, British, and French, and also a little bit by the Nordic countries. They established various trading posts and forts along the coast, and these powers also sought to exploit the region's resources, particularly in the transatlantic slave trade that had now been booming. In the 1600s, coastal regions of Western Africa, including modern Togo, became important trading centers for the European powers, mainly the Dutch, British, and Portuguese. And that's why this region was known as the Gold Coast, specifically the area that is now Ghana was the Gold Coast. But this entire region was known as the Slave Coast because of the fact that so many different slaves were being traded in and out of here. And that it was just a general hub for this horrible, horrible practice that was making up a huge part of the world's economy for such a long time. And this became such a big thing because European demand for slaves was increasing, which caused local African intermediaries to emerge as a kind of means to create capture and make it a business because money seems to run everything, and everyone has their price, it seems. That's not an accusation towards anyone, but you know, people seeing that this slave trade, which is inherently bad, especially when it's you kidnapping your own people and selling them away, you know, money talks, man. So people get to a point where they start to shift, and people always tend to ask that, like, why were Africans trading themselves? It's money, man. Why wouldn't you? You get to this point where you're kind of struggling, you see this new power that comes in, and you see what they're doing, and they're making a lot of money off of it, some people see enough commas and dollar signs, their morals get really weak real quick, and this happened here, and that isn't even to judge them that hard, but they practiced along, right, aside, right alongside the Europeans in the worst practice that you know humans have ever carried out. So definitely something to think about on why it happens. Towards the end of the 1600s, European powers intensified their efforts to establish colonies across West Africa. This started with the Swedish, who established a Gold Coast settlement for a time in an area that connected Ghana to Togo. And they eventually lost it to Denmark-Norway after those powers invaded and kicked them out. And then that kind of control lasted until different powers like the French, British, and Dutch started to really expand into the region. During the 1700s, Togo was home to various indigenous ethnic groups and small kingdoms. These societies often engaged in a lot of trade with European powers. What they gave that wasn't slaves was mostly ivory, gold, and agricultural products. Sometimes local rulers sought European support in their local battles, and they formed alliances with them to strengthen the ability they had to fight and crush their opposition. The expansion of European colonial influence and the slave trade led to conflicts and resistant movements in the region. African societies, including the Ewe, Mina, and others, especially in Togo, resisted the encroachment of European powers and defended their territories as hard as they could. Local resistances often took the form of armed resistance, diplomatic negotiations, or evasion strategies to keep from capture. And the entrance of the Europeans brought a complete social shift as now different things were being prioritized in the trade and in the economy. And on top of that, there was now a lot of cases where an entire nation would now be encapsulated into a European colony. So now you had to bow your head to this European power rather than to your own chieftain. And even if you did bow to your chieftain, your chieftain did in some way have to bend the knee to the people reigning over them with guns threats of slave trade, and all the things the Europeans possessed. It would be in the late 1800s that the German Coastal Protectorate was established in 1884, and this lasted until 1905 when it became the German colony of Togoland. Germany would influence the land a lot, and a lot of its influence can still be seen there today. The biggest one is actually the railroad, as a huge amount of present-day railroads in Togo were built by the Germans because the German Industrial Revolution was entirely based on the expansion of railroads and stuff of that sort. 
And on top of that, there's different structures, and sometimes you could see it in different foods, that there was a big influence of the Germans on Togo. But this was not to say it was all good, as the German colonial rule faced a lot of resistance from the local populations. Various ethnic groups, such as the Ewe and Cabre, actually organized resistance movements against the German oppression. One notable example was the Ewe-led resistance movement known as Kapoto, which was an attempt to overthrow or at least weaken German rule in the early 20th century. Now, following World War I, Togoland was actually divided into two mandates that were made by the League of Nations. One of them was for the French and the other was for the British. This made French and British Togoland. Uh, the eastern region was French Togoland, which eventually becomes modern-day Togo, and British Togoland is in what is today Ghana. In 1956, British Togoland actually sent out a referendum that saw people agree to join the Gold Coast, which the following year, in 1957, would become independent as the nation of Ghana. French Togoland also set out a referendum a few years later in 1960, also known as the Year of Africa because of at least 11 nations gaining independence that year. And that was also true for Togoland, where they also voted for independence. And their first president would be Sylvanus Olympio. He became the first president in 1961, but his reign did not last, as in 1963, he also became the first African head of state to be assassinated in a coup. This would be the start of a coup culture in Togo that would go on for a while, as the president that replaced Olympia was also overthrown in a coup in 1967, just four years after. And both of these coups were orchestrated by the same man, Nasimbe Ayadema. Now, Nasimbe Ayadema took power for himself in 1967 and remained the head of state in Togo until 2005, making him the longest reigning West African head of state of all time. Ayadema's rule was very unique as it brought a lot of different things to Togo that had not been present before. Ayadema established the rally of the Togolese People Party as the sole political party of the nation. He effectively monopolized political power and suppressed any opposition. He implemented a one-party system, which lasted until the early 1990s when multi-party democracy was finally reintroduced. And also during his rule, Togo experienced a centralized and autocratic reign from the government because there was one party and Ayadema held it very, very tightly. There was a huge limit on civil liberties and there was a lot of suppression of any political opponents rising up. Ayadema did maintain a firm grip on power through the military as well, as he threatened anyone who challenged him literally with the military. And on top of this, Ayadema's regime also faced a lot of allegations of Ayadema's regime also faced a lot of allegations over human rights abuses, including reports of torture, arbitrary arrests, and the disappearance of many political opponents. And the government crackdown on dissent and lack of political freedom also resulted in Togo being characterized as unsafe by many human rights organizations and by the international courts. Ayadema's rule came to an end in February 5th of 2005 when he passed away. In a controversial move, his son Fare Nasiembe was quickly installed as his successor with the support of the military because they bypassed the constitutional succession process and placed him directly on the throne. This placed widespread protests and condemnation both domestically and internationally as the international community saw this as a completely unfair transition of power, which it completely was, as the people had no say in it, despite some of them supporting it. But that's also why you hold elections, so that people who support a move like that can just vote to support it, but that's besides the point. And despite all of this, Farai does actually remain in power, and remained in power for quite a long time he did. And I would go as far to say, still does. It's ridiculous how some of these things happen. 
In the time after the election was settled, this did not quell the calls for political reform and a cry for restoration of democracy in Togo, but the government engaged in dialogue with opposition parties and civil society organizations to address any of these concerns about human rights and electoral process, but this didn't change anything. This led to protests and constitutional reforms in 2007, because Togo witnessed a series of protests led by the opposition, which wanted reforms to the Constitution, they wanted limits on presidential terms, and this didn't really achieve anything except for these protests resulted in a lot of violent clashes with security forces and led to the loss of several lives. In response, the government initiated constitutional amendments, including the introduction of term limits, which came only after the sacrifices of the people who fought for them. Then also in 2007, and then following it in 2010, Togo held legislative and local elections, aiming to strengthen the democratic processes and ensure broader representation within the government. These elections were seen as steps towards greater political inclusivity and transparency. And Togo made a lot of effort to promote economic development during this period. The government focused on diversifying the economy, attracting foreign investment, and improving the infrastructure. But the challenges such as poverty, unemployment, and income inequality were very hard to beat, and they still persisted throughout this. Togo also started to reach out as a participant in regional initiatives and other organizations because it remained a member of the Economic Community of West African States, also known as ECOWAS, and the African Union, so that they could collaborate with other neighboring countries on all sorts of issues ranging from economic to security ones. Now, also during Fowler's rule was a lot of him winning and winning because he won re-election in 2010 and 2015, and these none of them were seen fully, at least by the opposition or by the people, as free and fair. So in 2017, many protests broke out to challenge the rule of his family because he is the son of Nyasimbe Ayadema, and this family had now been dominating politics for close to 40 years, so people were not okay with this. And despite this, Fari actually did win another election in 2020 by a pretty significant margin, and he is still the president to this day. And that pretty much gets us to the present, where the political landscape in Togo has continued to evolve with ongoing discussions and debates about governance, democratic processes, and other political reform. Opposition parties and civil society organizations have gained a lot of movement and power, as there's now more transparency, electoral reforms, and a greater human rights code across the nation. And Togo has remained focused on economic development initiatives, including infrastructure projects, promoting investment, and fostering sectors such as agriculture, manufacturing, and other services. And this has all led to Togo trying to attract foreign investment because now it's starting to look into its tourism sector because more and more videos are coming out on YouTube and from other organizations that are acknowledging how beautiful Togo is geographically and that there is a great reason to go and visit no matter who you are. But despite this, Togo does still face many ongoing challenges that are related to poverty, access to education, and health care for most people. The government has sought to address these issues through social welfare programs and other initiatives aimed at bringing improvement to the living conditions in the nation. And it has shown because despite the fact that Togo does rank low on the Human Development Index and is only seen as partially free on the Freedom House scale, it has been improving very steadily since the 2000s because as of right now it's a roughly a 0.55 on the human development index to put that into frame the most developed nations in the world are upper nines like 9.6 to 8 range like extremely developed i'm talking switzerland norway even above the u.s kind of thing and then really low countries can get as low as south of the 0.3 mark 
being at this middle part is good for them because even as close to the current age as the early 2000s are, it's approved year over year since then. And right around then, Togo was a 0.3 or so. Now it's pretty much doubled that to get close to a 0.6. So year by year, this place is improving. This country is getting more rights. It's getting more civil liberties. It's getting wider expansion of these welfare programs that are helping the impoverished get out of that positioning. So this country is doing its best. And despite it definitely being in a tough place right now where a lot of its population is struggling and there is social inequalities, as well as a president that was not ever formally elected being in power. Things are shady for sure, but they're still going pretty good, and they're improving. Even if they aren't great today, they're getting better year by year, and they're way better than they were 20 years ago. So you got to give Togo credit where credit is due. And with that, that gets us to the end where I always like to leave it with a kind of takeaway or a mindset. And with Togo, that is going to be very simply just don't give up. And deeper on that would be just start the process and don't worry about the result. And I say that with Togo for a very obvious reason. This country got handed the same awful deck of cards a lot of sub-Saharan African countries got handed, which is you get colonized, you get your valuable resources taken, you're used as slaves for hundreds of years. And then once the independence finally comes and you're able to break away from these colonizer chains, you're expected to be on par with the countries that were stealing money from you and constantly getting stimulated and weren't ever abused in that way. So they have that issue. They have the issue where they've struggled to bounce back from colonialism and struggled to maintain stability in the times of independence because they had their democracy ripped from them for hundreds of years. That's the thing people don't think about when they think of Africa. But on top of that, it's the fact that people don't want to acknowledge how deep this stuff goes. And even though a country can be independent for 60 years, like old Togo here has, doesn't really take away the fact that the lack of stability kind of comes from the system that was placed upon them, where violence was always the answer, kings rule over all, that sort of thing. So once you give these nations independence and wonder why they use the same system they've been living in for generations, it automatically inherently generates some instability. But I'm getting sidetracked. I say that with Togo and my advice because Togo has pushed forward. Despite this awful hand it's been held and been forced to deal with it has continuously improved and that has been shown literally in a quantifiable way indexes that rank the political freedom civil rights and overall development of a nation in its people's access to education and healthcare and all these things that matter very quantifiable things this nation has improved year over year for the last 20 close to 30 years yes they've had rough patches but year over year over year they're better and better and better. They're expanding their rights. Are they as free and rich and great as Norway? No, they're not. Are they as strong as the U.S.? Are they as important as Russia on global politics? No, but they're getting there. They're taking steps. They're involved in their regional things. They're involved in African continent organizations. They're doing all of these things year by year by year, and it's not looking great. The people who have been in poverty 20 years ago, some of them are still in poverty now, but some of their friends aren't. Some families that did have generational trauma and generational lack of wealth are getting out of that now because there are programs that could help them and things like that that have been expanding for 20 years. That's happened year after year. And even after these years, it's still gone from very terrible position to less bad position. It's not like things are great and shiny and peachy. That is the thing I think you can apply to yourself with anything you do, which is anything that's really worth it, really changing the way you think, changing your body, changing your health, changing the trajectory of your career or your marriage or relationship, any of that, that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of chipping away. It takes a lot of 
day in, day out where you don't see results, especially for things like the gym and your mindset. Relationship, you may be able to see some stuff overnight where you just change something and you feel really good. Treating your partner well, they're treating you well, you adjust things to speak better. That's a very direct action has results. You can see that. But some stuff you can. You could do a lot of curls, eat a lot of good food, do a lot of squats, and not think your legs and arms are getting bigger. That's adorable. Same thing could happen opposite way. You could feel like you're doing all this and not losing weight. And those are areas that are very tough, but you have to know if you can qualify the level of work you're doing where you could say that this is really good work, it's I'm doing all the things right, I'm eating right, I have my mind right, I'm doing everything good, but I'm not really seeing it on the scale yet, trust the process. Trust the process because those chipping away, those 1% every day, those even 0.1% gains every single day, they equal 10, 20, 30% in years. And when you look back at pictures of you from a year ago, six months ago, hell, even three months ago, you're not going to be able to recognize them as much because you're moving farther and farther from that. No matter how much of a baby step it is, it's still a step in the right direction. So don't give up on that. Just trust in it. And I think that relates perfectly to Togo because they could have just accepted their fate as impoverished and just say, oh, you know, we're victims. Colonialism was so bad. Da, 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 da. We give up. Just give us your handouts. We'll barely scrape by. We're fine with that. They're not. And that's the thing people also need to learn about Africa is they aren't just these victim nations that have their hands up and are crying and wailing, asking to be helped. They're not. They're people just like you and me. They're people that have worked hard just like Americans and Europeans and Asian countries have. All those things because they are human. That's what it is. It's human ingenuity. It's human pride because nobody wants to be taking handouts and nobody wants to be getting kicked to the side and told they're less good because these people are not, not at all. And they're very much okay with the fate they've been thrusted into because they're going to get themselves out. And you've seen that over the years as they've improved and improved and improved because you can do the same. So don't give up because you don't think gains are coming. Don't give up because you don't think you're making progress because I promise you, if you're doing the right things consistently every day, week after week, month after month, the results will come. And if they happen tomorrow, great for you. But if you don't see them for two, three years, then good. Because you're just getting delayed gratification. And you're going to be able to look from that point two years from now at where you are today and not even be able to recognize who you are. So I say that is that with Togo. And I say that is that for you. So truly, thank you all so much for being here. And I want you to, one, really hope you enjoyed that. And two, I want you to process that. Process Togo's history. Process what happened here. Definitely keep up with it. Because as the next elections come, likely in 24, we are going to want to see what happens with Nasiembe, and it's going to be interesting. So that's interesting. I feel like the lesson we pulled out of here was fun. All sorts of things like that. So hope you guys are good. Hope you enjoyed. I'm very glad you joined me today. So one more time, thank you all so much for being here. My name is Reese Garlinski, and that was Young History. You guys enjoy. Thank you.